Welcome to Caring on the Go, your exclusive access to the latest news and commentary from the current issue of Caring for the Ages, the official newspaper of AMDA, the Society for Post-Acute and Long-Term Care Medicine. Statements made by guests on this podcast are their own opinions and are not necessarily the positions of the society. A speaker's appearance on the program does not imply an endorsement of them, their views, or any entity they represent. This podcast is eligible for ABPLM pre-approved certified medical director credits. Details will be provided at the end of this podcast. And now here's our host of Caring on the Go, Dr. Carl Steinberg. Welcome to Caring on the Go for the combined August-September 2023 issue, which is a theme issue focusing on sexual expression in post-acute and long-term care. I'm your host, Dr. Carl Steinberg. Caring on the Go, a member of the AMDA on the Go podcast series, spotlights articles and stories from Caring for the Ages, the news magazine from AMDA, the Society for Post-Acute and Long-Term Care Medicine. With every new issue, we welcome Caring for the Ages Editor-in-Chief, Dr. Elizabeth Gallick, to discuss some key articles. In this episode, highlighting our August-September 2023 issue of Caring, today we also have a special treat with Caring's managing editor, Tess Bird, appearing as an additional guest. Dr. Gallick is a nurse practitioner in long-term care and community-based settings through a clinical practice within the Shepherd Pratt Health System. She's a professor at the University of Maryland School of Nursing, where she teaches in the Adult Gerontology Primary Care Nurse Practitioner Program and conducts research to improve care practices for older adults with dementia and their caregivers in long-term care. Tess Bird has a PhD in medical anthropology from the University of Oxford, where her research focused on life transitions, uncertainty, and well-being. Before joining the caring team as managing editor, Tess was a Mellon Fellow in writing for the social sciences at Wesleyan University. Beth and Tess, welcome back to Caring on the Go. Thanks, Carl. So thrilled to be back and so happy to have Tess with us. Yes, thanks, Carl. I'm really happy to be here. And we're glad to have you. Okay, so we're going to kick off today's session talking about the lead article from page one of the issue, which was by our senior reporter, Joanne Caldi. And this piece was provocatively entitled, The Pandora's Box of Addressing Sexual Expression in Nursing Homes. And that kind of sets the tone for this special issue. So I suspect that many of our listeners have had a variety of experiences and challenges with sexuality in nursing homes and other long-term care settings, especially in people with cognitive deficits or disinhibition related to other medical conditions. So anyway, I love how Joanne kicked off this article with this colorful old saying, just because there's snow on the roof doesn't mean there's not fire in the furnace. And so, Beth, what were your key points for our listeners from this article and what issues does it bring up for you? So Joanne always does a lovely job in um, these summary articles and bringing across multiple perspectives. Some of the key points that I I think she uh, did really well with was talking about the assessment of capacity to consent for sexual activity, recognizing that residents have rights to sexual expression, but um, we also need to understand someone's capacity to consent. And some of the things that the experts recommended when you're considering this is, can the individual differentiate between truth versus fantasy? Um, Also, do they know um, the fellow resident that 
or or um, individual that they want to um, have a relationship with, or are they misidentifying that person as their spouse? Hmm. Um, is there the ability to understand um, a possible exploitation? And um, do they understand the risks of engaging in um, sexual activity? And um, can they understand consequences, uh, risk of sexually transmitted diseases, et cetera? So I, I thought she did a nice job of bringing up all of those different factors. Um, she also discussed a little bit about medications and how we have to look at them um, from two different sides. In some instances, medications can exacerbate sexual behaviors or hypersexuality, such as the dopamine agonists um, that we commonly use to treat Parkinson's disease. While in other cases, it's an off-label use, obviously, but there are medicines that may um, reduce sexual urges or libido, things such as antipsychotics or some of the antidepressants and beta blockers. Um, and then lastly, she uh, kind of tied things all together, talking about the importance of communication with families and also um, talking openly with staff about this issue to help reduce stigma. Yeah, that is, that's a lot to unpack. And, uh, you know, uh, the ability to separate fact from, uh, you know, truth from fantasy. Uh, I'm not sure. Uh, I mean, I watch the news and I, I feel like there's a lot of people in our country who don't have dementia who seem to have that problem. But anyway, uh, that's that's kind of a high bar. The things that you do. Uh, and I guess, you know, thinking a little provocatively, it's if somebody thinks that the person is their spouse, um, but it's not, uh, is there harm in them doing a pleasurable activity? Um, I, I mean, it's, are they being exploited? Like you said, it's just, it's so complicated. And I think, uh, obviously this is a perfect example of where we really need to give person-centered care. And, you know, these are individual decisions, uh, that, you know, one case is very different from another case, even though they seem similar. I think the the other thing to consider, Carl, is um, are the current behaviors consistent with past behaviors? Yes. You know, yes. or is this something that's totally out of the realm of what was typical for that person? And um, you know, and what type of sexual expression is occurring, or you know, what are they what are they looking at? And talking this over with families. Um, and, you know, individuals, when they can make those decisions can, can help, but there's, there's not easy answers. And most facilities don't really have policies related to this just because, um, the issues can be so individualized. I think that's where some of the challenges lie. Yeah. Yeah. And, and then, yeah, the notion that a, somebody with advanced dementia or even moderate dementia will be able to understand the risks, right? I, I mean, that's just, I think that's unlikely to happen, but I'm not sure that their inability to understand risks should preclude them from being able to do something again that they want to do, you know, and that it's ex ex experientially pleasurable. But anyway, um, so let's uh, move on. This next article is not about sex. Uh, this is uh, from Below the Fold on page one, uh, written by Dr. Cheryl Zimmerman, 
who's one of our emeritus editors of JAMDA and an international authority on assisted living. So this article is about the work of the Be Well in AL Coalition. As you know, there are about a million Americans living in assisted living communities, and there's quite a bit of variability among state regulations governing them, and quite a bit, uh, quite a range of functional, medical, and cognitive status in the residents who live there. So Beth, what insights did you gain from Cheryl's piece that our readers can benefit from? Sure. So, I, you know, I think Cheryl, who's, you know, such an expert in, in, uh, in assisted living, uh, really summarized things nicely. And, and she drew attention how um, the individuals living in assisted living now are much more complex in mm. terms of chronic illness, um, about 25% of residents in AL are hospitalized at least once a year, and approaching 50% have dementia or moderate to severe cognitive impairment. And, you know, we're seeing more individuals with um, serious and persistent mental illness residing in ALs as well. Yep. Um, and so the lack of a national kind of um, uh you know, expectations can make things a little challenging. And so a group of experts got together and to address some of the concerns about the this increased complexity and made some recommendations, 43 recommendations, I'm going to only talk about a few, um, that really focus on improving the medical and mental health care and assisted living. And this was recently published in uh, JAMA Network Open. And the kind of the five global areas that Cheryl talked about were the need to improve um, staff um, and staff training and really focusing in on person-centered care and having um, a registered or a licensed nurse available on site, at least um, for some hours during the day. Um, right now in some assisted livings, there's more of a delegated approach. So there may not be a nurse that's um, readily available. Mm. Um, additionally, um, some providing some routine services like good foot care um, and you know getting residents weights at least monthly um, to track for problems with weight loss. Um, also having some routine assessment and care planning and having family involved um, and residents involved in that process. And, um, you know, having some uh, very basic policies and, and practices. So um, if there's an emergency department visit, making sure that that responsible party is aware of it, um, recording health information on, a re on some basis. Um, and then lastly, having access, um, whether that's people coming in or um, residents are going out to sites to have um, medical and mental health clinicians available um, and obtaining some notes after the visit if people are going off site for these services. And, you know, these are just kind of five big global areas that um, this uh, expert group really felt that um, all assisted livings across the country should um, address in some capacity. Yeah, that's again, that is so broad and there's there's so much going on. And I think a lot of places, uh, assisted living is sort of the wild, wild west still. It's because there's uh, there are not 
overarching federal regulations. And so there's a lot of variability in the state regs. And for example, where, uh, you know, the use of psychotropics is extremely scrutinized in nursing homes. Uh, there's basically no scrutiny. There's no need for informed consent. And uh, there are still dementia units out there where, you know, essentially everybody's on an antipsychotic and it's almost like, like, it's being used as a chemical restraint, uh, like like pre-OBRA nursing homes. Uh, and that's concerning, right? And there's no requirement for a sort of a, a medication regimen review like we have in nursing homes. And uh, it's true that there are a lot of people in assisted living who maybe wouldn't require that. But as you pointed out, the population in assisted living nowadays is similar to what was in nursing homes, you know, 15, 20 years ago, and it's a much sicker population and more vulnerable. And I think, you know, they, uh, they deserve a little bit more, uh, more oversight. Uh, the other thing is, you know, there's all these little six bed places, right. And to, there's no way that that place can afford to have a nurse on, on staff. Right. I mean, they can hardly find, uh, lay caregivers or med techs or or what have you to work. So, you know, how do we reconcile that with, uh, you know, you've got some 200 bed dementia facility, of course, they should be able to have a nurse and, and all that stuff. But what about a six bed? So any comments about that? Yeah, I, I work in a number of the smaller facilities. Um, I go in to address um, issues related to um, dementia symptom management and a lot of it has to do with the quality of the staff and at least the availability of contacting the nurse, even if the nurse may not be there mm -hmm. um, and having, um, you know, uh, uh, providers that are willing to come in when needed. Um, it, it's it's challenging because for many people, you know, these smaller facilities are their home and they can often provide um, a better a uh, resident to uh, staff member ratio, mm -hmm. um, but by the same token, the medical care, unless there's careful consideration given to it, um, may be more lax. Yeah, yeah. Well, and and uh, maybe there are some sort of economies of scale, or there, you know, I know there are groups out there that are um, offering their services. Uh, to do assessments. And I think, I wonder if telemedicine is a, a way to, uh, you know, get sort of somebody doesn't have to get in their car and drive 20 minutes to to see one resident. Uh, they can do at least some kind of an assessment for a change of condition uh, virtually. So uh, there's a lot to, you know, I think we're going to see more and more people living in these care settings. So uh, we'll see where that all takes us. But uh, thanks for including this article. I think it's a lot of critically important content. So uh, next, we're going to discuss Tessa's Caring Collaborative column, which is on page three of this issue, and it's entitled Making Space for Love Stories at Every Age. And Tessa, I just love your title. I think it's so important for us to realize that intimacy can take many different forms and love can be expressed in many different ways. So uh, can you talk a little bit about what motivated you and what you learned in writing this column? Yeah, sure. So, um, so this is the first time I've written the Caring Collaborative, so I was a, a little bit nervous. Uh, I knew I wanted to cover some of the research out there on sexuality in older adults, but I didn't want it to just be, you know, a dry, um, dry research. And I'm nobody always so, likes it. Nobody you know, likes it when it's too dry, right? Yeah. Right. 
So I was I was talking to one of my friends and she said, well, have you read the short story called The Bear Came Over the Mountain by Alice Munro? And I hadn't. So I so I read it. And it's a it's a short story about a married couple in their 70s who are navigating sexuality and love after the wife, Fiona, develops dementia and enters a nursing home. Um, and it's published in The New Yorker. And we have a link in the article. Um, and it actually inspired the Canadian film Away From Her, which I think is probably more familiar to listeners. Yeah. So after I read it, um, I started to think about how often we don't seek out these love stories in older age or or sort of make space for all the joy and conflict and loss that comes with with any good love story, right? But like mm-hmm. what's different about this this time? So I use this as kind of an anti-ageist jumping off point to then highlight some of the research out there on sexual expression in long-term care. And so what I learned from this research is that, um, first of all, older adults have this heightened capacity for more effective means of sexual expression. So this means that while sexual activity may continue at a reduced frequency, things like romance, companionship, and touch become more important. And I really like this idea that there is actually this heightened capacity for effective expression in this in the sense that we actually maybe get better at this as we age. Um, I also learned that sexual intimacy is connected to overall life satisfaction and well-being and is considered an activity of daily living. Mm-hmm. However, there's many barriers to intimacy and long-term care, as I'm sure everyone listening knows well. Um, and one review in JAMDA actually highlighted uh, these key things, limited privacy, physical limitations, cognitive decline or mental illness, the adverse effects of medication, and of course, attitudes about sexuality from staff and family members. Um, and I think, you know, part of our mission in this special issue was to address some of the stigma around sexuality. Um, and I should say here, you know, the idea for the special issue came from the um, ethics and uh, uh, mental health subcommittees, behavioral mental health subcommittees of AMDA. They kind of came together to come up with this idea. And part of the reason was to to focus on some of the stigma. So I I learned that women um, and LGBTQ plus older adults face more stigma, not surprisingly, and thus they're um, more likely to not communicate with their care providers around sexual health. And talking to providers is really important for medical reasons. For instance, there's risks attached to sexuality, as we know, like STIs and UTIs, Mm -hmm. um, and sexual health may also like issues coming up may also be a sign of an underlying disease or concern. So it's really important for care providers to talk to residents in a way that feels non-judgmental and safe. And, you know, as the final thing, like one, the good news about this is that um, one article showed that education of care staff to shift attitudes is actually really effective. So, so we can reduce stigma through education. Yeah, thank you for that. And I, I really enjoyed your piece. And I, I think, uh, you know, uh, it's true that for some people, uh, I think there's sort of a yuck factor in, in considering, you know, old people uh, physically having sex or, you know, whatever that looks like mechanically. Um, and it's it's not fair, right? And whether or not they're having, you know, traditional intercourse or whether it's just you know, hugging and, and, you know, maybe lying in bed, holding hands, whatever, those types of sort of, uh, you know, affective uh, sexuality that you were talking about. Um, I think uh, 
it's it's important for us to recognize that we may have some of these biases. And, and I have to admit that, um, you know, when I'm doing a history and physical on a new nursing home resident, um, I sometimes skip asking them about, you know, sexual orientation, sexual uh, habits, you know, current sexual, um, because it's slightly uncomfortable and, and it, it really shouldn't be. And it's just like, asking about death or something, you know, it's like, Hey, these are questions we ask everyone. I'm not, I'm not asking you this to embarrass you. And, uh, you know, some people are going to just shut you down. They're going to say, you know, Hey, you know, that stopped 40 years ago and I'm fine with it. Uh, but others, uh, I think welcome it. And I've had that experience. So this article for me is a nice reminder to, uh, uh be open about that. Like what you just said, um, Beth, any comments about this one? Um, I was very grateful um, to for Tess to helping with that. I had a little family uh, medical emergency related to assisted living and and such. So um, I was very appreciative she was able to to help and such a wonderful piece. I've actually I never read the book, but I did see um, the movie away from her and and found it um, to be pretty moving. Yeah. And I, I hate to say I still haven't seen it, but it is on my list. <laughs> you know, maybe we should uh, see if we can uh, have a showing of it at the at the annual meeting next year. That might be a, a fun thing to do. Uh, it's not something we often do to, you know, show films uh, as part of the educational offerings. But I think, you know, you could show it and then have a discussion. So uh, maybe it's it's getting late to, to get um submissions in. But I think that would really be fun. Maybe we could get somebody from ethics and. Uh, and the behavioral uh, folks to uh, to spearhead that. Anyway, um, so finally, we're going to wrap up talking about a topic that seems to make a lot of people uncomfortable. Even people who have the best of intentions and open mind are and are reasonably evolved. And this is Dr. Diane Sanders Cepeda's article on page four of the August September issue, entitled "Addressing Gender Identity in Post-Acute Long-Term Care," and we're talking about pronouns, transgender issues, and more here. Uh, but most importantly, how do we help ensure that our post-acute and long-term care residents feel comfortable, you know, seen, heard, and receive compassionate person-centered care in our facilities with respect to these gender uh, concerns? So Beth, what did you find most compelling about Diane's column? So Diane always does such a lovely job um, taking a, a story from her clinical experience and then using that to kind of um, provoke a wider discussion. And, and she did so in this um, article as well. She talked about a patient that she had cared for. It sounds like for a fairly long time, she felt it, it, she had known the individual well, but in the context of some um increased swallowing problems, there was a hospice consult that was put in and the resident ended up declining a peg tube um, as that was really not the direction um, that they wanted to go. And on the day of hospice admission, she was made aware that the resident's wish was to be identified by a name that represented their true gender. And it was different from the gender that had been documented in the medical record. And, you know, she was like, oh, my gosh, I, I, I didn't know. And so the, the article kind of um, goes on from there and and poses some some questions and, and talks as tested about how individuals um, who are LGBTQ plus 
are often experiencing, um, you know, health disparities. They have, um, you know, higher risk for some um, illnesses. They may not be comfortable in talking about things with providers and may forego treatment. Um, and there may be more issues in terms of um, uh, risk for uh, mental health uh, challenges. And so um, Diane does a nice job about mentioning what leaders can do, clinical leaders in the long-term care environment. And um, she brings up things like having, um, for your intake and admission policy, having something related to um, inclusiveness about gender identity and pronouns. And I know that with my practice with Shepherd Pratt, this is something that's now part of the um, electronic medical record. And so uh, something that just because that cue is there, I'm bringing up more uh, now. Also thinking about how you'd handle room assignments for a transgender uh, resident. And really thinking um, long and hard about um, a resident who was LGBTQ plus and would that person be comfortable in the facility? which is really gonna be their home now and what could be done to make people um, feel more comfortable. And, you know, she related all of this back to, you know, you can have different political and religious views and things about this. And, and there's a lot of polarization, but really what we're trying to do is to provide good person-centered care. Yeah, yeah. And I think, uh, you know, the, especially the older generation. I, I mean, somebody, if I ask somebody what their pronoun pronouns are, you know, an 85 year old widow, they may just look at me like, like, you know, I don't know what you're talking about. Um, but th that doesn't mean it shouldn't be asked, I suppose. Uh, it's just, uh, but I, I think the most important message is how do we make our, our homes, our facilities, uh, feel welcoming to people who who are not you know sort of mainstream uh traditional gender identities and uh that may be a tall order in some cases i think we have to be intentional about it and diane's piece really brings that out um other comments on this one uh tess orbeth just, I would encourage people to read it because, you know, as I mentioned before, Diane does a lovely job of weaving a little story in there and, uh, you know, coming out with some um, highlighted points of what she learned from her past experiences. Yeah, yeah. And Diane's in Florida. So, uh, uh, yeah, anyway, enough said about that. So, um so uh, there was so much additional great content in this issue. There was a lot of, of, um, you know, really interesting articles uh, kind of uh, addressing this uh, sexual um, activity and sexual behavior in nursing homes from so many different angles. So I encourage everyone to read it cover to cover. Uh, I'm sure most of you, most of our listeners uh, do read Caring cover to cover every month. But anyway, uh, I wanted to uh, call out specifically Alan Horowitz's legal column about dementia and residents' capacity to consent to sexual activity, where he digs in a little bit uh, deeper there. And then uh, Dr. Elaine Healy's ethics column that takes a slightly different approach to the topic 
And this includes an assessment tool for decision-making around sexual behaviors in post-acute and long-term care. And then Alicia Graff's piece about strategies to improve care for the LGBTQ plus community. And a pharmacy column by Robert Exeta about both non-pharmacological and pharmacological interventions for problematic sexual behavior. So uh, uh, Beth and Tess, before we close, any final comments or wisdom to share on these or other articles from the issue? I was just gonna say, um, while it doesn't relate to uh, sexual expression, there's also, um, if people are looking for free trainings for the DEA's eight hour opioid treatment training requirement, there's some options that are uh, listed in, in caring. I know I have to get mine done lickety split because I expire at the end of September. So, um, and then there was also an interesting article, again, not related to sexual expression, but understanding the concept of home or den dialysis in post-acute and long-term care settings and some of the advantages of, of having um, that type of service in your facility. So I would encourage people to, to check that out. We also had uh, Jean Manzi and colleagues talk about um, how the American Society for Consultant Pharmacists are partnering with their student chapters um, in, um, uh, in another article uh, for a partner perspective. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's so much in this uh, in this issue. Uh, Tess, any, anything that stood out for you? Yeah, I'll just add that I really um, like the article called Occupational Therapy's Role in Promoting Safe Sexual Activity in Residence. Um, and this is an interview between um, Ben Cantor and, and Zoe, I think, Lowitz. I, I'm, hopefully I'm saying that right. Um, and I think it was just really super practical and useful and highlights sexual activity as an activity of daily living that can um, OTs can actually build to insurance. Uh, yeah, that's, that's an interesting angle. And yeah, I, mean, yeah. <laughs> I, I think a therapy, uh, you know, that's uh, uh, as far as how things actually work, uh, you know, our rehab professionals can be super helpful. And I think Ben was at our annual meeting and uh, gave a presentation maybe on this exact topic. So uh well, great. That's going to wrap it up for the August-September 2023 Carrying on the Go podcast. Under the leadership of Editor-in-Chief Dr. Elizabeth Gallick and Managing Editor Tess Bird, Caring for the Ages continues to report and reflect the outstanding work being done by AMDA, the Society for Post-Acute and Long-Term Care Medicine, and its leaders, members, and communities. Please take a look at this jam-packed August-September issue with a focus on sexual expression, available as always without a paywall, at www.caringfortheages.com. And please recommend and share caring with your friends and colleagues. Uh, Beth, do you and Tess have any other special issues in the works that our listeners should be on the lookout for? We, we have one coming up um, on uh, the interdisciplinary team and diabetes. Hmm. And that will be, I believe, November, December. All right. Well, we'll be looking forward to that. I mean, there's so many new meds and and uh, so many other, you know, the continuous monitoring and stuff. So we'll, uh, we'll be looking forward to uh, to that uh, issue. So meanwhile, thanks again to Drs. Gallick and Bird for spending your time with Caring on the Go. Thanks, and, Carl. Yeah, thanks, Carl. Yeah, thanks for being here. And uh, thanks for a really a great issue. Uh, so now till next time, I'm Dr. Carl Steinberg for Caring on the Go. Wishing all of our listeners a great end of your summer and observing that summers just seem to get shorter every year.
If you are a physician and interested in obtaining ABPLM pre-approved certified medical director credits for certification or recertification, visit paltc.org slash podcast. Thank you.